Welcome to Insights, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is A Road to Infrastructure, and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Anton Pill, Managing Partner of JP Morgan Global Alternatives, and with me today is Mike Sembolist, Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy at JP Morgan Asset Management, and Paul Ryan, the CEO and Portfolio Manager of Infrastructure Equity and Debt at JP Morgan. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here, Anton. Well, infrastructure, something that's clearly on everybody's minds post the Trump election. There's been a lot of conversations about infrastructure and how it might be funded. Mike, let's start with you. You wrote a recent paper talking about public-private partnerships, PPPs, as well as Trump's plan potentially being a little bit more reliant on the private sector. We're a few months into his presidency at this point. Where do you see his policies headed? What are they sort of reading the tea leaves? Where do you think this is all going? (laughs) I'm still reasonably optimistic. It may take some time. I think the first thing to keep in mind is it was one of the only issues of bipartisan agreement during the campaign was infrastructure, right? It was one of the only areas of agreement between both parties. And both Trump and Clinton talked about wanting to add fairly substantial investment in infrastructure. They also agreed on a policy measure, which was a one-time tax on offshore corporate profits of anywhere between 10 and 12% to finance, and that would be earmarked for infrastructure investment. And based on the numbers we're reading, that would add up to something like two to 300 billion over five years. So not nothing, but not nearly enough to address all the infrastructure needs the country has. But I'm still fairly optimistic, even after the whole healthcare mess, that there's enough bipartisan agreement on infrastructure to get something done. But there's two components. One is, you know, this tax on offshore profits. And the other one, which has been somewhat controversial, is let's use public-private partnerships. And as soon as Trump announced that, he got savaged by the usual suspects who, you know, called it corporate fraud and corporate welfare and this and that. And it's interesting because a couple of years ago, Obama's own treasury published a paper on how they thought public-private partnerships were a good way to jumpstart infrastructure. And Paul and I, you and I have talked over the last couple of years about why that might be. And to give you the short answer, privatizing completed infrastructure doesn't build new infrastructure, but it raises the revenue that federal, state, and local agencies can then use to spend on new infrastructure projects. So that's why the people that wrote the Obama report and others are in favor of public-private partnerships, recognizing that it's not the privatization process that jumpstarts new build. It's the proceeds that That uh, derived from it. That can re-levered again to to spend more money. And where Paul and his team are so important to us is, you can imagine there might be a whole load of projects that end up slated for privatization. And what Paul has to do is sift through, okay, you know, which ones make sense, in which ones is the government saying they're going to commit to doing certain things that they may not be able to live up to? We're all aware of projects we've seen outside the U.S., like the water project in the U.K., where with the best of intentions, it was privatized. And then when the rate hikes went in on the customers and they complained, the government kind of turned around and changed the terms of the deal. Mm -hmm. So we're looking forward to this whole public-private partnership era on behalf of our clients who are looking for long-term fixed-rate investments with some inflation hedge embedded in them, but the devil is in the detail of these projects. And do you think the, you mentioned a little bit earlier that part of the plan was to fund this through sort of tax remittances of different kinds. 
Do you think that the infrastructure is going to be tied to the next sort of big fight around taxes that are coming out? Or you're hopeful that those are going to be separated? I hope they're going to be separated. Uh, by the way, because I think the corporate and personal tax cuts coming are going to be much smaller than people think, right? The border adjustment tax, I don't think is going to go through. And they're going to be having to finance personal tax cuts through deficit expansion. And you can't do very much of that right now. Right. So I think we're going to end up with very modest personal corporate tax cuts and then you know infrastructure as a kind of separate, unrelated initiative. Right. Paul, as you're looking today at different investment opportunities as a, a large manager of infrastructure projects, have you seen the U.S. market start opening up in terms of the investment landscape changing already, or is this more to come in the future? I think it's more to come, Anton. I think it's still very early days in public-private partnerships in the U.S. market. The U.S. market being quite unique in terms of a couple of factors. One is the existence of the municipal bond market as a very long-term, a very successful approach to financing infrastructure over a long term, cheap, liquid. Another factor is you've got 50 uh, or so states that act like you know, separate countries. And so while a federal administration can certainly create policies that can assist in the development of public-private partnerships, ultimately it takes activity at the state and local level, who are really the owners and the stewards of the assets and the public policy around the assets. So the bulk decisions. of the assets that would get privatized would be state-owned rather than federally owned? I think that's right, Mike. I think that's what we'd see. Now, you could certainly start with some federal assets to begin to show the states an approach and really get a few things moving. Could you give an example of what are things are federal assets that, in theory, could be sold for, well, a, for there's, value? There's not many of them, but you could look at things like Amtrak, and then within that system, you have you know sections of Amtrak that are profitable and some other sections that would need to be subsidized. But far and away, the vast majority of assets would be state and local. Think about things like airports, for example, which are topical at the moment, which are typically owned by an authority put together by a city or a state or a county. Describe a little bit how public-private partnerships work. Is the private aspect an equity holder and the public piece is a debt holder? Is it the public simply a protection? Just give a little high-level overview. Sure. So typically what we've seen around the world is the asset continues to be owned by the public sector, and then the private sector may take an equity interest in a lease or a long-term concession. It's rare that you'd see an outright sale of an asset for public policy reasons, but typically a long-term concession. Those have been as long as 100 years and as short as you know, 20 to 30 years. Is that kind of like a ground lease in real estate? Correct, correct. And so, interestingly, the U.S. concession started to be quite long, 100 years or so, 75, 100 years, particularly in the toll road space, whereas I think in Europe and other parts of the world, the trend is shorter, so 25 to 50 years. So think of it as being the private sector takes on the right to operate the asset under a defined set of rules, and to Mike's point earlier, how those rules work is critically important to understanding the risk-return profile of each of the assets. And then what we tend to focus a lot on is the third P, which is partnership. And the absence of a true partnership, so anything that looks and feels a bit more like zero-sum economics, you know, should be a warning to equity investors, particularly in a young market. The private sector needs to take on risk in order to earn returns, so that can involve construction risk. That could be in a new greenfield asset or it could be ongoing maintenance and overhaul programs in a brownfield asset. Operating risk, you've got to really think about revenue risk and volumetric risk, so passenger risk in the sense of a toll road or an airport. How much risk are you taking? How much can you control? Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago when you and I worked on the infrastructure paper that we wrote together, we looked at some pretty scary data 
on some toll road history, going back around 20 years, and that in most of the projects, the consultants had overestimated the traffic patterns by somewhere between 10 and 40%. Correct. We saw a lot of optimism bias. And you know, one of the things that we think about is in a world with a lot of capital pointed towards infrastructure and not a lot of assets coming out at the moment, that the first phase of privatizations could attract a lot of attention. And I think it's fair to say that history has shown that where there's a lot of capital paying a lot of attention to a small number of deals in a young market, you see a lot of optimism. Describe a little bit how investors get access to that. It may be sort of the equivalent of a ground lease for 20 or 30 years. Do you own a lease outright or do you typically create a private equity style company that owns a number of these leases and tries to generate scale from operating multiple things at the same time? Look, you definitely typically create a concessionaire, so a vehicle to own the concession, which would include your equity and typically some debt on top of that. And look, scale's important. Scale is a great point, I think, in terms of thinking about the major items that would go into these assets around construction, building out an expertise that can drive economics and savings, operations and maintenance as well, and the application of technology to these assets consistently over a large base could be quite useful as an equity investor. So I think that scale is important, and therein lies the difficulty. These transactions can be lumpy. Each asset is different contextually, not only its catchment area in economics, but potentially the terms of a concession and the relationship with the counterparties. So scale, uh, I think, is a great goal, but can be very difficult to achieve. And Mike, when you talked about sort of the couple hundred billions of dollars that needs to get spent, how much of that do you think is going to come from raising proceeds from existing sales of assets versus some sort of federal backing on repaving or building out well, a new no, I think, I think transmission line? I think you should split the numbers in, in two buckets, right? So let's, for rough numbers, let's talk about a trillion dollars. I think they can actually raise, let's call it $250 billion directly from a one-time tax on all accumulated offshore profits, whether they get repatriated or not. It's called the deemed repatriation tax. The government would be collecting that money, and they would make direct investments the way they always have on you know, high-speed trains and civil and military aviation uh, infrastructure. And so that might not include no, any that private may money? that all public. Okay. Then they still need another $750 billion. They don't want to expand the budget deficit. And by the way, the states, most of the big states are under budget constraints as well because of unfunded pension and retiree health care issues. So you need another $750 billion. That's where you do these public-private partnerships. And in the big picture, you take an asset. You can either finance new projects or take existing projects that are already owned by the public. And people think they're using them for free. Except they're not, because part of their tax revenues is going to pay the municipal debt that was raised to build that thing in the first place. And that would then get privatized. People have to actually start paying for something that they used to get for free, whether it's a toll road or a skyway or some other facility. And then the government would take the proceeds from having privatized that asset and then do more direct investment on its own. And so the primary role for us isn't financing new projects. It's by investing in existing projects that have at least some kind of proven track record in terms of usage and cash flow and demand. Again, we mentioned earlier, one of the scary things about the toll road projects, a new toll road project requires you to say, okay, how much will people pay for the time and convenience and gas savings versus driving around on a longer road but not paying? 
And that's a complex human behavior and traffic pattern thing that has proven to be somewhat difficult to anticipate. But just to make it clear, you know, the government through the public-private partnership is raising proceeds to do direct investment. And the role for Paul and the rest of J.P. Morgan Asset Management is investing in those existing projects that get privatized. And how do you think about, it's almost a decade ago now, that the Build America bond program came out where the federal government helped support portions of bond payments to sort of encourage lending to spend on infrastructure-type projects. Could I think you see the Build America being... bond program worked reasonably well. There was some foreign demand because you know of its tax treatment and the yields were okay. But I just don't think that given federal finances, I don't think that's the answer. I don't think you can do another trillion dollars of that stuff you know, to finance the U.S. infrastructure needs. Right. And almost every developed country has come to the same conclusion, which is we are going to have to mobilize private sector capital to build the stuff out that we're building. I've got an eye on the market coming out in the next month or so that looks at, in a lot of countries, rising entitlement spending is squeezing out the spending that governments use to spend on infrastructure. That was so ironic about presidential campaign. They all talked about how much they love infrastructure, yet when you look at the data from the Congressional Budget Office, infrastructure spending is being cut every single year for the last 15 years because of riding entitlement spending. So there's no way to get these infrastructure things done without mobilizing the private sector. And what's really important is to have a team like Paul who can help us navigate that because the first couple of times through the mill is going to be hard for the government because they're going to learn what it takes to give the kind of protections that investors are going to require to put their money at risk. And, you know, the risky part will be the deals where the government thinks it's given enough but really hasn't. And you've got some private sector investors that kind of, on the hope that they'll be treated well, forego certain protections in the documents. And that would be a huge mistake. So, Paul, let's talk a little bit about the different types of infrastructure that are available in sort of different classes. And we've been talking a lot about roads and toll roads and things like that. So let's maybe begin with toll roads and fixed assets. Give us a little bit of a flavor of how do you think about those? Clearly, demographics matter. Is the cities they two roads connect have a certain population, autonomous cars? There's got to be a lot in your mind as you're thinking about that. So let's start with that as sort of a an asset class. Sure. So I think one of the things we look for is operating history. So show me a history of utilization of the asset, and that extends from toll roads to airports, ports, etc. But show me the business case for the asset, historic evidence of utilization, and particularly through changing circumstances. So changes in the economy. You know, one of the things that we've seen in privatizations historically in the US is what accompanies a privatization is a step change in the tolling regime. So have we seen a step change before? And typically, you have not seen that in publicly owned roads in the US. You've seen a pretty consistent approach to tolling without a lot of increases. So a step change then can change the consumer behaviour that Mike was talking about. So I think in terms of underwriting the risk profile of the asset, a lot of work on extrapolating from history to the future. Now, in the case of a pure greenfield asset where there is no history, you know, where's your baseline, where do you start? And you could be looking at comparable roads. You look at the catchment area economics but it's certainly you know, a much more risky proposal than uh, you know, to look at a greenfield asset than an existing asset with history. Construction costs and rehabilitation of these assets, I think, is another big point to be thinking about. And I think with you know, young asset class, urgency to invest in infrastructure, one of the big risks I see is construction cost inflation. So we want to move as quickly as we can. You look at history around civil engineering construction during an upturn. 
And but just to be clear, when we're talking about privatization of existing assets, mm-hmm. construction costs don't come into play. What gets interesting is when the government wants to privatize a new project and lay off the construction completion risk on private sector capital. That's correct. Yeah. Those kind of projects usually entail higher potential returns for the investor the more that they bear the construction and completion risk. I think that's what you're, you're referring to, right? Absolutely right. But let's not forget that for some existing roads that need rehabilitation and some substantial capital work, oh, that really? could take place over the next decade and needs to be estimated pretty accurately in terms of – because you would certainly take that obligation on even uh-huh. with an existing brownfield road. Right. And we saw that in some recent examples in the U.S. So I think in both cases, but you're absolutely right. For a brand-new toll road, not only do you have the patronage or, and revenue or risk. airports recently, right? Yeah. I mean, and the Correct. expansion of these airports or renewals of airports. That's right. So, yeah, so on top of the capital costs, you've got patronage and revenue risk. And then what does the operating cost structure look like under private ownership? And how different is that? And what are the obligations that are placed on you by the public sector owner in the concession agreement? So... There's a lot of detail to work through. and uh, what, are, what are some good examples of privatized assets in the U.S. that have been privatized for more than five or ten years? Are there, are there some? Uh, look, there's not a whole lot of examples. Again, it's very young in the U.S. Instead, I look to the private-to-private market. So look at core infrastructure assets being operated in, well, it, it may not be a strict public-private partnership, but look at the interaction of power generation with utilities, some of which are government-owned and the interaction of utilities with customers themselves. And I think the lessons from that are it can be done. So the marriage of public policy and outcomes for for families with a fair return to capital providers and great operating standards can be done. There's good examples of it, which should give some confidence. There's also great examples elsewhere in the world. Didn't Pennsylvania privatize the thruway or did they not? It attempted to privatize the turnpike and it didn't pass uh, through the legislature. Right. Correct. But you've had some success at purchasing water and sewer companies at the local level, granted still fairly small, because ultimately, like you pointed out earlier, a lot of these are locally held either at the municipal level or at the state level. Is there an increased openness beginning at the local level to perhaps because, like you said, this is very new in the United States. It's been around in the UK for 30, 40-odd years, in Australia, et cetera. Is there new openness at sort of the local government level to sell the local water system or to think about privatizing assets that they currently own? Look, I don't think we've seen a consistent openness. What we have seen that's important is an openness of regulators to putting capital into the ground. So we know the infrastructure is old and needs to be updated. Importantly, at the moment, families feel better, right? So with the improvement in the economy, we can afford to have our bills increased for safety and environmental. And I think that's a really important factor in terms of thinking about the maturation of the US market. And I think that will benefit the kind of fledgling PPP market in terms of just seeing more activity by private investors in what's essentially public infrastructure. And it's a really good time to do it before construction costs really take off. If the future looks like history, Looking back from 2002 to 07, there were some really significant increases in construction cost inflation. And you get to the point where you know, consumers' wealth is not growing at anywhere near that rate. And we could be facing one of those periods. So I think the urgency is upon us to be working out systems that are fair, that provide safe and effective infrastructure for families and users, but also a fair return for equity. Yeah. One of the interesting things that has to happen is, as I mentioned before, Not all, but most privatizations entail the perception that people have to now pay for something that they used to get for free, whereas in reality, it was never free. 
And that same person will also say, wow, I can't believe my effective tax rate's over 50%. Well, guess what? Part of the reason that state and local tax rates in New York and in California are in excess of 10% is because of the cost of servicing some of the debt to build the infrastructure. So I think the people pushing privatization as a concept will eventually have to go on some kind of public education campaign to make sure that people understand that it's not free right now and that if you don't agree to privatizations in the future, fine, your state taxes may just continue to go up as an alternative. And by the way, just to bring everything full circle, Trump and his people want to cut personal tax rates from the top rate, let's say from 39 to 35, but they want to do that on a deficit neutral basis. So guess what they may do to raise revenue? Further eliminate the deductibility of state and local taxes on your federal return. Because for instance, if you live in New York, you have a state tax rate of 11, that's really seven once you take into account the deduction on your federal return. Guess what? Trump is suggesting that maybe that can go away. So that 11% New York state tax rate is really going to be 11%. So that's going to put even more pressure for states to start privatizing because people are going to have to pay the full freight of the state tax. So a whole bunch of factors are kind of coming together, I think, that over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see a lot more growth in the privatization of infrastructure. Now, the demand from an investor standpoint is going to get interesting, right? So as we are beginning to see, you mentioned labor inflation as potentially being a bit of a risk for some of the newer projects that are out there. A lot of clients are looking for inflation protection and are looking for real asset exposure. Does infrastructure get this for you? Look, it's a great question. I think made a very important point up front. The devil's in the details, ultimately. And so if the concession agreement that's ultimately negotiated between a private investor and the public authority does not allow for inflation protection, that needs to be understood very clearly. The assets themselves absolutely do provide for inflation protection, typically. But again, you need to make sure that's implicit within the agreement or explicit in the agreement. I was looking at some real estate buildings the other day with our real estate people here. We own about 100 office buildings around the country. And I saw a pretty big dispersion in there. I found a bunch of buildings with long-term fixed-rate leases that were done, I think, at a time of inflation complacency. I mean, a couple of years ago, and even maybe a year ago, people felt inflation and interest rates would never go up again. And people started to book tenants for 10-year lease extensions with minimal step-ups. Then you find other buildings where you could tell the ownership has been much more careful about five to seven year leases. And when their leases reset, they reset to market. And then once they reset to market, they grow each year with CPI. So you can structure these things with inflation protection, but that has to be done up front. You can't think about it after the fact and say, oh, now I want to try and make this thing into an inflation hedge when it wasn't. So some of the deals Paul and I looked at a couple of years ago did have inflation characteristics built into them through changes in the user fees. In the regular billing, right, the regular water bill. or power, That's et cetera. Right. That's right. Um, and, but by the water is a fascinating one. We've looked at some water assets recently. Talk about an asset that's a scarce asset that has tremendous economic value that should be a great thing to invest in, but I think is the best example of how hard it's going to be to get that done because for a couple hundred years, people haven't had to pay for water. And so instituting a privatization framework around an asset that people have been consuming for free for 200 years is really hard. It's a big change. Big, big change. And so we're staying on top of this stuff. I don't want to speak for Paul, but Paul told me this is right. I don't think we're going to try to break too much untrodden ground investing in projects 
where people are paying for something that they have never paid for in, in the history of their existence. Absolutely right. Absolutely <laughs> right. Similar to step change increases in pricing. What's even more dangerous than a step change increase is paying for something for the first time yeah. or feeling like you're paying for something for the first time. So absolutely right. right. Big risk. So, Paul, one of the things you were telling me the other day that I think between our solar and wind power plants that I think we generate enough power to power all of Ireland through renewables, which is quite interesting. Um, yeah, but they're not all on Ireland, so that's kind well, of an irrelevant that's a, metaphor. That's, <laughs> well, by the way, they couldn't be because it's never sunny over there, but that's a, that's a different story. Um, Very but, windy, though. <laughs> exactly. So how do you think about sort of ESG in the context of investing in infrastructure? Because that's Explain clearly, what that means. Correct me if I'm wrong, it'll be environment, so social, and governance. Governance, correct. Um, how does that fit in? Because it seems like on infrastructure, it's a much more topical piece of investing. And that's obviously growing. In, well, I, I would say across the board versus like clean, clean, all, yeah. clean building, LEED certified, et cetera. Does that influence your investment process? How do you think about Sure. ESG? So I think the starting point is the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment, which is where ESG comes from. And those principles are very clear, and I think they're fundamental principles. Basically, what they say is that you should be taking into account as an investor the environmental, social, and governance factors that are relevant to the asset. And that's not only in terms of screening investments, but also ongoing asset management once you own an asset. So the application from the UNPRI into day-to-day, I think, is a very logical thing. Now, environmental, in terms of true core infrastructure assets where there is typically a compact under which you operate the assets or a license, the environmental guidelines are very strict. And and so typically you're following those very carefully. Social, I think, is really important, a little bit less of a checklist than environmental. But social is really important in terms of being involved in the local community and understanding who your customers are and seeking to provide good service because this can begin to alleviate some of the issues that Mike's raised earlier. Yeah, I think we need to be careful with this ESG concept in the following way. If the desire for socially and environmentally conscious investing creates a framework for us to invest in that's an attractive one, then I want us to look at it. I don't think we should do it the other way around. I don't think we should be looking for things to put money into because they're environmentally seen as constructive in terms of cost and carbon emissions. I have never seen as much dispersion. When I look across activist deals and venture capital deals, I thought I would never see more dispersion than that. I looked a couple of years ago at the dispersion of wind farm capacity factors across wind farms in the United States. It was shocking how much differential there is in the kind of efficiency with which wind is converted into electricity at different locations. And when you look back at all the offering documents, they all said, oh, somewhere around 30%, and you ended up between 17 and 50. And those projects tend to be leveraged, right? Because they've got cash flow associated with them. So I think we just be really careful in this whole ESG framework. We have to use the same degree of rigor on an environmentally conscious asset as any other asset. Yeah, I was thinking of it more actually from the social standpoint, where if you supply, the one thing that's a little bit unique in this asset and oftentimes you won't get returns as high as people would want in the SASA class because you own a critical component of society. If you own the water and sewer company of a particular town or municipality, by definition, it would be unlikely that you're going to get outsized returns on something that's highly regulated. That is piece of society. If you turned it off, people wouldn't have water and sewer. 
So that's why I was thinking more on the S side, on the social side, which is there's almost like a social compact between the investor and the municipality or the final consumer because it is an integral part of what they use every day. It's a little different. It's not quite optional as other things that we might be consuming. I was yeah, thinking but the in that of context. Uncertainty, in exchange for not having the same kind of upside, the kind of deals that look interesting are the ones where they reduce the cone of uncertainty around the outcomes. It. To me, that is one of the basic pieces of core infrastructure is that the volatility of these return expectations can be much lower. And the returns may not be as high, but the steadiness by which those returns are created, the regulations themselves will make them steadier, or your yeah. cone of uncertainty is going to shrink, should be quite small. That's right. And I think what UN Paradise says, and what I agree with, is that the right application of E, S, and G reduces the volatility of the operating profile of the asset, right? So managing the environmental risk within the asset appropriately, so avoiding fines, operating safely, being a part of the local community, having customers and customer service that allows you to earn your fair return without discounts for bad service, and governance. Governance, the right approach to governance in terms of operating the asset and stakeholder engagement relationships should reduce the return profile of the asset. So look, we think the factors are important. I think they're very logical factors. And I was talking, Mike, much more to the operation of an asset once you own it, as opposed to the reason I would be investing in an asset is its environmental footprint. Right. But one of the interesting <laughs> things about wind and solar, we've been talking about this now for a decade, but there are still things as operators that we're learning about the operating and maintenance expenses associated with solar and wind. What is the real life before you have to recommit capital, what is the real operating life of a you know concentrated solar right. power or PV solar facility or wind farm? I think a few years ago, people might have thought they were 30 years, and now I think some of the estimates are closer to 15. We have no idea what the useful life of certain large-scale lithium-ion battery storage is, which is now the next big thing that's being talked about in terms of utility-scale solar and distributed solar. The water requirements for maintaining your capacity factors at solar farms there's a lot of stuff like this, you know, that really, at the end of the day, those are the factors that drive the profitability of your investment. Right. And I think to your earlier point, this isn't sort of the main focus. The main focus at this point is trillion dollars of infrastructure spend across everything from ports to railroads to water to electricity transmission, generation, energy movements, transmission. Right. It moves, it spans. Let me touch on one last topic here. For now... The opportunity set is fairly constrained. We have to obviously see what's going to come out. What about the rest of the world? Because in Anglo-Saxon countries, we've seen a history of privatizations, a history of infrastructure spending. A matter of fact, I just saw some data the other day that in Anglo-Saxon countries outside of the US, infrastructure allocations are as high as 12% on a regular person's portfolio. What's the opportunity set in the rest of the world outside of the United States? Look, I think it's definitely a more mature market both in terms of allocations, but also in terms of the opportunity set for investment. You know, Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom, very mature profiles, different parts of Europe, very mature profiles. Those assets still require a lot of capital. You think about water in the United Kingdom, for example, very mature, very limited set of licenses given, but each of those assets requires constant updating. So plenty of capital still to go into already privatised assets. But a word of caution yeah, the Australian market saw a very large privatisation pipeline disappear for political reasons a few years ago. And we'll see how that plays out in the longer term, but it highlights the fact that these assets are, you know, sit squarely with, yeah, between the public sector and the private sector, public policy, 
and the political framework that they exist in is complicated and changes through time. And so we look at that very carefully in terms of people's ability to pay for infrastructure and public policy issues around private ownership. And just to complete the circle, you know, we started talking about Trump. Now it looks like corporate and personal tax reform are a summer thing, which would mean that I would expect to see infrastructure taken up by the Congress in the fall. Right. So fall, earliest time to maybe see some of this opportunity set develop. I think, Paul, as you mentioned, at the end of the day, plenty of opportunity already today if you incorporate the rest of the world and the developed world where yeah. a lot of these opportunities already exist. Well, thank you both for joining us here on Insights. Hopefully this gives everybody a little bit of access and some insight on the new infrastructure asset class that's emerging. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on April 10th, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications, and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the marketing name for the asset management businesses of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and their affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EEA jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 19760-1586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 20112035E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited, in Australia to wholesale clients only, 
as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, in Brazil by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada for institutional clients' use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA SIPC and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.